What is up, everybody? I am Chris Sinclair. Welcome to the Good Bottle Podcast. I am joined by my fellow host, Drew Garrison. We are a couple of self-proclaimed booze pundits with a lifetime of industry experience, reaching all the way back to the days of washing dishes and cleaning pizza ovens, all the way to owning multiple businesses and selling some of the most exclusive brands in the world. Our goal is to walk you through today's most interesting alcohol industry headlines while sipping amazing drinks as we do it. Drew, what are we covering today? Christopher, I am back and ready for action. We're taking a week off and being replaced by the amazing Karina Martinez, who I don't think it's enough credit for being as great as she is. Amen I'm, to that. I am I am here. We have some we have some fun spirits we're gonna be sipping on. We have some great stories. Um, well, maybe not so great for the court of uh, master sommeliers, but <laughs> um, we're gonna we're gonna dive into all the issues they've been having this past week, and then we're also looking into shining a light on wine fraud as well. And of course, we're gonna have our sexy bottle of the week and our dope follows of the week too. But before we get all to that. Chris, what are you sipping on? Oh, baby. I am sipping on some Benedictine liqueur. You are just... On a big rock. Off the rails these past couple weeks. Just all the things that people usually don't drink, you're like, drink them. Well, I don't understand why people wouldn't drink them, but, uh, (laughs) you know, that's me. I I never claim to be amongst the plebes. I think I uh, I fully qualify as a, an ivory tower uh, consumer. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Benedictine is fucking delicious, man. It's uh, it's taste of of uh, uh, spices and honey, and it's it's freaking lovely, and it's it's the uh, the nectar of the gods, if you will, made by Benedictine monks coming. Come out of France, I believe. I believe Benedictine mon- monks are uh, fall under the classification of Trappist monks. I, I'm sure somebody out there is going to uh, correct me, but uh, my understanding is that Trappist monks are a, like a, a set of monks who dedicate themselves to producing things, and like that's how they um, fill their days. Is like they farm, they garden. They produce things like liqueurs, beers, um, you know, booze, uh, furniture, uh, you know, candles, what what have you. Things things that they can sell uh, that are good for the you know that make money for the church. I don't think it makes money for the church anymore. I believe all that sort of stopped in like the nineteen seventies. Um, but I believe Benedictine was one of those, and and it was a it's still a super secret recipe that uh, no one knows the full the full recipe no single person knows the entire recipe very much like chartreuse in that way um, but this stuff is just freaking delicious man and uh, i i have to slow myself down from drinking it because i really really enjoy it and it's it's relatively pricey for a liqueur um, but it the cocktails that it goes into are some of my favorite cocktails and just it by itself is one of my favorite liqueurs that you can just like pick up and drink because it's complex and fucking delicious. What are some of the drinks that it goes in? Oh my goodness. 
uh, Avukare. It goes into Avukare. Um, it would go into a Monte Carlo, uh, which is like a uh, Avukare would be kind of like an old fashioned or a Sazerac play. Uh, Monte Carlo would be like a, man, a play on a Manhattan. Um, there's a tiki drink, and I cannot remember the name of it um, that that it goes into, and it's primarily Benedictine with a little bit of rum and I think some lemon juice. And I, I can't remember the name of it, but it goes on crush ice, and it's stupid delicious and incredibly easy to make. Um, but it it's very Navy expensive grog? if you're ordering at a bar. It's not a Navy grog. It's uh, uh, I will remember it when it's way too late or while you're speaking uh, in the middle of a news story and I'll just shout it out. Uh, but it, it's a fantastic drink. I mean, this, this, this liqueur is just, is just godly. <laughs> and you're just drinking it neat right now. I actually, I'm, I'm drinking it on a big rock. Oh, on a big rock. Yeah. My apologies. Big rock being large ice for the uninitiated. That all that industry talk sometimes we just get ahead of ourselves we're like that's oh true. yeah that's ice it's, it's just ice it just sounds fancy uh what are you what are you sipping on there Joseph? so i picked up a bottle of our mcnair's blended scotch whiskey and this is something that's actually owned by the glenalki distillery and I think I've had some Glen Alkey on here before, but Glen Alkey is a Speyside Scotch. And a couple of years ago, it was bought by Willie, Billy Walker and a... Um, I really thought you were going to say Willy Wonka. I got really excited. It, I mean, it's he's, he's the candy man. I will say that. Um, he's actually the guy who got... Um, God, what was it? Ben Riach and... Yeah. Glenn Morangi really going and building them up to the point when um, Brown Foreman bought them. So then he took that money, went and bought the Glen Alkey distillery, which historically had been used in like different blends and stuff like that and had a pretty significant collection of cask. And um, one of the things that he wanted to do was he wanted to showcase some of these casks that he had seen. So he did a, he did a blend and this one in particular is, is called the Lumreek. And it is a combination of Isla whiskey, which they do not disclose. And then, of course, Glenallachie. Um Comes in a couple different forms. There's their standard peated, which is what I'm going to be drinking tonight. Then there's the 12-year and there's the 21. Now, we've had this for a couple months, but I haven't tried it yet. So this will be my first time trying it live. So I just really right hope that it that it goes well. Yeah, like, you know, before it, pretty much everything I've had on this on this podcast before i've always had at least once right um this one never all right man it's gonna be very um but of course you know it's like i said it it is a it is a blended scotch so which that means is you know typically the scotch i'm drinking are single malt so it's coming from one single distillery this is coming from the whiskey that's in this bottle it's coming from multiple distilleries uh sometimes when it comes to blends it can be what are some of the higher ones like 32 different distilleries i think is some of the highest i've heard um this one's just going to be two uh so let's see how it goes so on the nose kind of like that light peat that you would expect so that that smoky profile that either people love or hate how do you feel about peat chris i love peat um 
I, I although I feel the same way that I uh, about Pete as I do about hops, and I feel about um, uh, heat in like hot sauce. Um, I don't like I don't like single flavors or single notes just for the sake of themselves. I like them when they're balanced out with everything else that's around them. Um, so like you know your IPAs that are just overly hopped IPAs, I can't stand them. Uh, hot sauce that's just hot for no reason and completely lacks flavor. I, like I hate that. Uh, and and same with hopped. Uh, sorry, a, a peated whiskey that's just like overly peated and not balanced out. Um, I I can't stand. But oh, uh, it can be a super peated whiskey that is incredibly well balanced and i'm all about it because it's just more flavor um and it's just a whole other aspect that um that gets brought to the table by that aspect yeah well if that's the case then i'm gonna have to bring you some of this whiskey because it is very nice i am super stoked on this um pretty much all those notes that you just said without them being too specific to, you know, to one thing or another, but it just, there's a lot of layers to this. And on the, on the nose again, is that it, it definitely came across more PD and thought I was going to have a lot more smoke to it, but it really gave way to some sweetness. And that's where that space side kind of came in. Um, did a, I mean, Billy Walker definitely doesn't need my congratulations cause he's got almost every award out there, but, um, huh. But wow, this is really, really good. And um, it clocks in at 46%, and it drinks a lot easier than that, too. Like, this is just a really well-balanced blend. And yeah, this is this is really nice. I'll have to bring this to you tomorrow, let you check it out. You know, that, that, that sweetness that comes in uh, with peated, peated whiskeys, I think, is something that a lot of people um, uh, sort of misunderstand, or they, they, they don't people who are scared of peated whiskeys don't, don't think exists, right? Like there's, I, I feel like people who are scared of, of peated whiskey of that, like that iodine or that bandaid flavor, you know, um, or, you know, they're like, Oh, I can't, I just can't handle that. It like, it's too strong for me. It's too, it's too much. You know, like they don't understand that like like Lagavulin 16 is probably one of the sweeter whiskeys that's out there, but it's offset by like this minerality and this iodine in that peat that just make it this incredibly well balanced whiskey that I, I love. I mean, I, I've been on record many times as saying Lagavulin 16 is probably my desert island scotch, or at least it has been. That might be changing now. Uh, uh as as i get older but for a long time it's been my it's been my desert island scotch yeah i mean i definitely think that that pete you know acts as that overzealous office assistant to the ceo or the bouncer at a really nice nightclub you know it keeps the riffraff out and as long as you're willing to put your time in and get past them like you're going to get to this really beautiful whiskey and and you know it's so often uh, people will take a will take a sip of a peated whiskey and be like, "Nope, that's not for me." And like that's that's gross, it's too smoky. It's like, well, that was one taste. You you really do have to at least get to that third or that fourth taste, right? 
because that's when it's really going to reveal itself and really show you what um, what's capable of. Now, and, and again, with this one, there is the peat element to it because you are blending an Isla Scotch into it. But then you have the Glenallochy, which is a space-side expression, which is going to be fruit-forward. It's going to be a little bit sweeter. This is this is the one, or one of the regions, even though, you know, say what you will about the regions, that this is something that that you can um, kind of rely on for that taste profile. So, yeah, this is this is a really good whiskey, and I and I know that blends unfortunately still have a really bad rap, but you know, with things like this and a lot of other, well, they fucking up. shouldn't, man. I mean, <laughs> you just have a single. I mean, if you have a just the company compass box alone should should destroy that concept. You know, just on its own right. But um, if you like, if you like, if you like single malts, you like them because they exist because of blended whiskeys. Do your part, drink blended whiskey, make it easier for everybody else to get uh, some single malts also. Keep that yeah. shit alive. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think I think part of my journey, you know, and in, in when it comes to single malt whiskey was being introduced to all those independent bottlings, you know, and having all these distilleries that typically only go into blends, you know, so like like Johnny Walker, they use a lot of different distilleries. Uh, Chivas uh, uses a lot of different distilleries and ones that had never ended up in their own bottlings until independent bottlers came through. And you start to see all these names and you're like, well, what the hell is that? What the hell is that? What the hell is that? And you drink them on their own. They're like, they're super great. And then you're like, okay, maybe I need to revisit those blends. Cause if this whiskey is this good on its own, like how is it complementing with these master blenders and stuff like that? It's, yeah, yeah, um, it's, yeah. it's super cool. And I just, I think, I think more people need to need to be drinking blended whiskeys. And I think that's happening with like, companies and in bottlers like compass box like they've really helped to change the you know the title of that and then also you know a lot of people will will you know papu it or you know but it's like johnny walker there's something in that lineup that you're gonna like it might not be the black it's probably not the red you might think the blue's overrated but there is something in that lineup whether it's the gold the green um there that is a really good example of some really fun blends. So I think the I think the platinum is a fantastic whiskey. That oh, I've never had that platinum. one. It's it's under the blue. Uh, it, it usually retails for about like 70, 80 bucks. Um, it's it, you can you can find it. It's pretty easy to find. You know, I think most total wines will probably have it or. You know, uh, um, a Bevmo or even a Costco. You know, we probably have one or two. Uh, they're they're not they're not unicorns by any means. They're just I don't know. They're they're a little lesser known. You know, they sort of fall in the middle between the the reds and blacks and then the blues. Um, but it is it's just a lovely whiskey. Uh, I had um, Billy No, uh, who owns uh, uh, the the reputable uh, uh crew restaurant uh, that if you haven't eaten that you should you should definitely go and enjoy yourself uh it's where drew was last week or one of the many places drew was last week one of the many places uh, there was plenty of love being spread in sacramento that day that's lovely that's just adorable 
um, he bought me a bottle of the platinum uh, a few years ago for my for a birthday present, and uh, it's, I had forgotten how good it is. It's just it's just a great quintessential, you know, kitchen table Scotch whiskey. Uh, well, it looks like it's at least eighteen years old too, which is which is nice. So if you can get a yeah least, that that know, minimum blend yeah I a, mean, a minimum eighteen year old Scotch whiskey for. A hundred bucks. It looks like that's a pretty, it's a pretty sweet deal there. It's, it's solid, man. Like that's, it's, it's just a great whiskey. Um, it's, it. I, I'm not going to say it's going to blow your socks off, but you are not going to be mad. And you know what? It like it pairs well. Let me tell you from experience with a cigar. It pairs well with barbecue. <laughs> it pairs well with sushi. It pairs well uh, with kind of any food that you want to you want to eat. I mean, it's it's. It's just good. So I, I'd i be surprised, like you said, if if you sat through and consumed all all different marks of Johnny Walker that you don't you don't find something. And I, you know what? I feel the same way with doers. You know, like I'm I'm a um, my my dive bar drink when I, I can't really find much else or I just walk into a place and I don't want to think about it is a is a doers and soda with like a lemon twist. I fucking love that shit. Yeah, it's, it's a good. Call. It's just great. Um, yeah, and then if you if you like pick up your game a little bit and go to like Doer's Monarch and you go like um, or or uh, they're like twelve year or fifteen year, stupid good whiskey for very little price. It's it's rad. I I think I think that people poo pooing on blended whiskeys is about the same as people poo pooing on Merlot. I was about know, to say Merlot. I knew don't, you were going that don't route. Don't really know what they're talking about. <laughs> oh man, I knew you were going to go that route. Good for you. Good Thank for you. you. Hey, Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Now it's time for our opinion on facts we've heard from reputable sources. Okay, so it's been a horrible horrible few weeks for the court of master sommeliers uh, and really it's actually been they've had a rough run since about june and um, the most recent development is devin brogel who has been the chairman of the america's um, chapter of the sommeliers since 2018 just resigned amongst allegations of sexual misconduct and from a Marie-Louise Friedland, her accusations date back to 2013. Devin is currently the wine buyer for Whole Foods and was facing increasing pressure over the past few weeks to resign. Now, when he did resign, the when he issued a statement, he said it was unrelated to the allegations, which I think is ridiculous. But, sure, buddy. Um, yeah, right? But over the... Over the past few months, there have been 21 different female sommeliers who have shared accounts of sexual abuse and or misconduct with the Court of Master Sommeliers, and thus far, 10 men have been suspended and one voluntarily resigned. Um, the Court of Master Sommeliers is, is, of course, one of or was one of the most highly respected institutions when it came to wine knowledge and education. 
but uh, as things start to come out, whether it is sexual misconduct or just outright racism within the court, this is uh, this is obviously looking like the end potentially for this group. So, Chris, with all that said, and you know your knowledge of of the Psalms, and you know, and this is a program that both you and I have talked about routine, you know, frequently about going through and learning and, and stuff like that with a combination of the dining in experience and where a sommelier really, really kind of shines in those scenarios, picking wines for people's dinners and stuff like that being so greatly affected by COVID. And then on top of this, all of the different allegations and controversies that have broken out in regards to the court, the court of sommeliers. What do you think the future looks like for this organization? I hope that they take a cue from changing times and um, alter their best practices. Um, uh, Travis Baker, shout out Trav, you're welcome. Uh, ha, uh, and I were talking about this actually last week, and 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 you know he said that he's like you know pretty much any 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 secretive group or you know uh, uh, upper echelon uh, fraternal order that uh, that doesn't make their practices or their grading um, or, you know, their, their, their comings and goings typically known to the public. That's almost always ruled by men uh, are almost certainly always having penises going where they shouldn't go. And you know what? I uh, couldn't really find a lie in there. Uh, and I, I'm, Bound to agree with him. I I think, you know, did you watch the movie Psalm? I watched all of them. All of them. Okay. I only watched the first one. So in the first one, uh, we follow uh, four characters. Characters that they're all real people. Um, but uh, uh, four people going, uh, studying for their master sommelier exam. Um and I remember watching um, and thinking that um, uh, I'm going to mispronounce his name, I think, but uh, Dylan Wilson, um, he's the only man of color in, in the first movie who's working towards his uh, master psalm. I remember thinking like, wow, this seemed like the only reason this guy didn't get a crack at it or didn't get passed was because he's a man of color and it it felt weird because you can't like you can't point to any specific reason why but that's also because they don't they don't grade you they just give you they just say you either pass or you don't pass and they don't tell you why um and i i i find all of that kind of bullshit i find that that same that that same level of bullshit with cocktail competitions honestly even if we're not, even if we're not talking about like something that like truly impacts people's lives, something that's like day to day for bartenders, at least pre COVID, you know, um, 
cocktail competitions that where where they don't ask the judges to reveal their scores, um, explaining why people did better or didn't do better. I think it's kind of bullshit because more often than not, the competitors are the ones that will care ten times more than the judge. And I, I feel the same way, sort of about about this. Uh, I know I went on a little bit of a tangent, but uh, the 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 master psalms here are held to their own standards, um, you know, and and it makes and breaks people's careers. Well, I, I maybe not breaks careers, but it definitely makes careers. And if you're if you're not giving people a, a clear and concise way to um, reach that level of excellence. I think that's kind of fucked, you know, and, and it doesn't mean anything. It reduces what it means for the general public, the consuming public who at the very least is paying attention. Now I, I should also point out that, that sommelier, just the title alone is just a job. Like, yes, you can, you can earn, you know, your, your, um, your pins and your credentials through the court of master Psalms, but just the term sommelier is just a job. Like technically for good bottle, I am the sommelier. I am the man who studies the wine. I am the man who buys the wine. I am the man who sells the wine. So that technically would be my job. I wouldn't call myself that, but you know, if someone were in my position and that's what they chose to concentrate on, then it would be fair to call themselves that. Um, so, I don't know if the Court of Master Psalms is going to go away. I I highly doubt it. It's been around for a long time. I think a there could be something that come that that sort of rears its head to to be a more progressive, open sourced version of that. That um, it really wouldn't. It probably wouldn't even be that hard if you were well connected within the community to to create that um uh, but my hope again is is that the the court of master psalms really they just sort of they take a, a note they take a page out of history and they just they lean into changing times and they they become a little bit more open source they become a little bit more accepting and they uh they make it less uh less obvious that they're just wanting to stick their penises in places that it shouldn't be. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think not to completely retread everything you just said, but so many of their issues stem from their secrecy and lack of transparency. Uh, when you, when you do take that test, when you fail or, or succeed, like they don't tell you what, like why you failed and stuff like that. They might give you tips on, Hey, you need to work on this. You need to work on that. But for the most part, it's shrouded in secrecy. And for a long time, it was a scenario where, uh, and, and even today, people feel that it's like it's really just a, a personal bias that these guys have. If they like you, they're going to make you a master psalm. If they don't like you, they're not going to make you a master psalm. Um, and it's really just these people who are working towards these pieces of flair, right, to put on their jacket. And um, I was talking with a friend of mine recently who does uh, have his, I think, level two psalm uh, level, and he was working on his third, and then just completely fell out of out of it. He was became disenfranchised with the entire process, and um, he 
brought up the office space quote. He's like, you know who also had pieces of flair? The Nazis. So I'm <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Uh, but it you know, it is it's a it's an extremely secretive group that when you have that level and there's there's no checks and balances there's no there's no other body kind of making like yeah these these courses that you because there's not there's not like a strict course right you just have to be able to they give you kind of like these really loose guidelines on how the things that you need to know and then from there good luck we'll we'll tell you if you pass or not um yeah i mean they have the written exam they have the theory exam and then they have service and theory and service aren't graded on uh you know on a quantifiable level you know it's all it's all qualitative yeah um and and so i have a question for you chris let's see if you know this so the the master psalms court was started in 1972 okay do you have any idea how many people have reached the master sommelier level oh uh i think it's relatively low i want to say Ooh, I want to say like 150. Yeah, I want to say like 150. Very, very close. Since 1972, a test that thousands of people have taken, 172 is how many have reached the master level. Well, and then I don't know if you have these stats in front of you. Do you know how many of those are men? 150-ish? Yeah, exactly. I think that that's, that's very uh, appropriate um, number to, to acknowledge. Yeah. So, you know, it, it will be interesting to see what happens moving forward. I know that there have been some women who are very prominent in the wine world who have started to discuss the the concept of starting their own programs and their own levels of certification and things like that. Because um, it, it certainly does seem like this is one of those groups that it might be so tainted at this point that you just scratch the whole thing. You know, whether it was this or it was the cheating scandal from 2018 when one of the participants was given the answers and then that person gave them to a bunch of other people and they had 18 people Passed the test, which then, of course, led to what the fuck is going on. Um, so again, this this is not, and then and then stemming back to in early June, as our country was was really opening their eyes to just how much racial injustice there really is and how much systemic racism exists. The master court of sommeliers was not spared from that, and they were actually a frequent target for a lot of professionals within our industry and rightfully so um, kind of to your point earlier. So, so this, so to me, I, I feel like, you know, you could go the route of, Hey, just open up your doors and being transparent. But at the very, at the minimum, I mean, it, there's gotta be a, a complete overhaul of their board and stuff like that. Cause right now it's just the chairman who's resigned. Nobody else has. And yeah, like, you you have a figurative head that that has rolled, you know, and that and that's just American, right? That's not that's correct. Yeah, that is, that is I, correct. you know, and I I've read um, multiple critiques. Um, one of the more incendiary ones um, that I think was relatively well backed up was suggesting that the Court of Master Psalms was a um, 
um, you know, a white supremacist organization. And this is uh, by a woman of color here in the United States. And she backed it up pretty well. Um, had some great arguments that I didn't, you know, I, I didn't want. I read it first and was like, okay, that looks like hyperbole. And let me read further and see what, what else she has to say. And, and um, she broke it down pretty well. There, there's one um, point of contention that uh, admittedly is a shortcoming uh, to myself. And I hope uh, that all my uh, friends who consider themselves allies and want to walk me through it uh, will, will uh, be gentle with me and, and, and help me with. But one of the points of contention that she brought up was that um, the tasting notes, everything, everything about the tasting notes were based around a Eurocentric uh, point of view. I hope that was really fascinating. And I, I kind of want to know more about that um, because obviously I'm a, I'm a white dude and I'm Italian Scottish heritage and I'm in America. So uh, obviously, obviously I think a Eurocentric uh, point of view, at least in terms of a um, tasting profile is kind of my default so i'm very curious not to say that like i haven't consumed you know foods from asia and and africa and all over the world but i i'd be uh really interested to hear a different point of view on on a uh, a different tasting grid um that actually that. seems really really interesting to me it's not it's not something i feel defensive about it's it's i le- legitimately just want to know more yeah there's a um there's another podcast that I listen to called the Sporkful and it's a, it's a podcast. that's all about food and, and, and drink and stuff like that. One of the recent episodes they had was talking about language within the culinary world and how most of the, the language ends up being skewed really towards American profiles and, and, and stuff like that. And, it it was a really good listen, and I'm not doing it any justice right now. But I think it I think it had a really cool way of explaining to it without kind of you know getting people fired up because it, there is a little bit at least for myself where I kind of feel like okay oh yeah we suck again I get it like we've ruined the whole world and and stuff <laughs> like that and but the way that they put it in perspective was like well you know when I came to this country, like I didn't know what this flavor profile was. I was like, what the hell is that? And so I had to learn it and we're not forcing people to learn other cultures, other food profiles and stuff like that. And I know for myself, and this wasn't anything that I was doing because I was trying to, you know, be this woke Avenger or anything like that. It was mostly just out of a point of like, like, Oh wow, there's really interesting foods from all around the world because I'm experiencing all these different spirits from around all the world. It's like, I want to see how this food pairs with it. I want to, I want to try this. I want to try that. I want to continue to push my palate. So it came out of this place of curiosity. But then when I started to hear these people talk about it, who were kind of like, yeah, and I have to fit how I do things as like a, as a writer for the eater or as a writer for this, as a writer for that, like I need to fit into this box and I have to use things that I am maybe not as familiar with. So it's just, it's, it's definitely something that, it seems ridiculous, but then you start to think about, you know, the cooking shows you watch and stuff like that. And a lot of the notes that you get, you're kind of like, oh, yeah, like that. Those are all very familiar, you know, and I'm not. Whereas if I when I have traveled outside the country, like, you know, you go and experience stuff, it's like, 
It's like, whoa, this is really interesting. It's unique and stuff. If you had to do that every single day, like on your job, trying to fit your lack of understanding because you didn't grow up with these flavors into it, like that would be really, really hard. So if you can apply that to trying to pass a very, very intense wine tasting experience and you don't have the same palate experience that has been dictated by this world and there's not a whole lot of room for fluidity there. Yeah. It's, it's incredibly biased, you know? Yeah, definitely. And, and, and we talk about this all the time on, on this show is that when you taste something, it's subjective. And when you're trying to put things into these, into a perfectly, you know, like this perfect square. You just can't do that when it comes to spirits. You can't do that when it comes to wine. You can't do it when it comes to food, because everybody. Yeah, you, I mean, you definitely shouldn't be graded on your ex, your own personal experience and how you and how you translate that experience to other people, um, unless that person is me, and then I'm going to judge the shit out of you. <laughs> well, let's be real. We're both going to judge everybody. But yeah, you're uh, welcome. Yeah, you guys are welcome. <laughs> I um, um, I I love Benedictine. I don't know if you guys heard me take another sip. That was uh, that made me really happy. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine though that like taking taking a test like that. Let's say let's say you um, grew up in um, Madagascar and you happen to be relatively wealthy and. Uh, your experience of incredibly dope wines comes from Madagascar and like South Africa and the occasional import that you are able to do. And you happen to work yourself into a position where you can, you can travel to take this exam. Right. Um, and all of a sudden you find yourself in Paris sitting in front of, a bunch of white folks and you're talking about and you're talking about a wine that you're tasting. I see where that's going though when you're talking about a, a Eurocentric um, you know, tasting palette. Like I, I think on one hand, the you know, the devil's advocate would say, well, it's not your job to discuss what you taste. It's your it's your job to tell other people what they, you know, are going to experience. But that's such a fucked up way of thinking. Like because like we said, you can't, you, I can't tell you, Drew, what you're tasting. All I can tell you is what I'm tasting and what it might seem similar to for you. And if we don't have that same experience, then there's no fucking way that that's going to work, you know? Yeah. Okay, we're sticking in the wine world, but it's going to get a lot less heavy and we're going to get into some cool stuff. There is a group of Australian wine scientists who are testing the potential of molecular fingerprinting to quickly authenticate the provenance, which going back and hitting provenance real quick, we talk about terroir, we talk about provenance. Terroir is going to be the environmental factors that affect the outcome of a wine, of a spirit, things of that nature. The provenance is going to be the entire process. So what the winemaker does to it as well, it's fermentation time, stuff like that. I just love Can the Can you put a little phrase. growl in your voice when you say terroir? I want to hear you say terroir. Terroir. 
Oh, that was hot. Yeah, I love the word provenance, and I think it's a great. I think it's a great word for our industry, and more people need to use it. Okay, so that's my quick tangent. So they're going to help you quickly authenticate the provenance of wine and help crack down on multi-million-dollar problem of wine fraud, which is something else that we've discussed on this on this show before. Which is people will take really really expensive wine bottles, or they'll take labels and then put them onto cheap imitation ones. There is a great documentary on it called sour grapes if you haven't watched sour it grapes about rudy Cornillo on i i actually was talking to someone recently who used to serve rudy and his uh and his uh millionaire guests at uh at a restaurant in la and she said that uh it <laughs> some of those fakes were just atrocious like yeah just Which... awful like they were just terrible wine <laughs> but nobody had the guts to say anything well, I think that, and I mean, okay, hold on, but let me let me get through this, and then we'll and then we'll, we'll okay. continue to talk on that. So this is from um, the University of Adelaide that they are working on this on this technology, and basically it measures the elements in wine using inductively coupled plasmaza spectrometry with the fluorescent spectroscopy or spectroscopy. <laughs> yeah, see, I, I knew I was going to butcher this whole thing technique, which they say is simpler, faster, and cheaper. Um, Ruchira Ranawira, who would go on to say that this is actually a pretty simple technique, which I do not agree with, especially not having the vocabulary for it, but it's going to really boost the supply chain as a robust method for authentication and detection of adulterated wines. Um, there's going to be other there's other existing and potential applications of this technology, including phen- um, phenolic and white wine color analysts and smoke taint detection and the smoke taint is obviously interesting to us because we just had all these fires up in northern california so you'll be able to test the wine for smoke taint without having to actually taste it which is going to save people a lot of time and a lot of money as well um this is also going to help with regional branding by understanding how their wines characteristics are influenced by the region and how they differ from other regions. So with this emerging technology that we see unfolding and obviously a technology that neither one of us really understands, Chris, when you hear something like this, does it sound too science fiction or is it really exciting and worth diving more into? No, I, th- I think it's super fascinating. I and I totally agree that from a at very least a nerdy and curious perspective, wanting to know the science between te- uh, you know the science behind Tewa rather than sort of the um, the theory or the well, I'll even say spirituality behind Tewa. You know, I I think that this really creates something special and can remove some of the mysticism that's behind, that's behind, let's say like, you know, Burgundy wines or, um, or Marlboro wines or Napa wines and really break down exactly why they are different as opposed to just going, well, yeah, they're different. You know, this is the, this is where this comes from. This is, uh, the lineage that this winemaker had, all of that matters, 
Um, but you sort of remove the veil of mysticism that's behind it and you increase the understanding. And by increasing the understanding that's behind that, I'm someone who believes that that also increases your appreciation for what it is. There are people who will disagree with me on that, but I, I'm always, I'm, I'm always on the side of more knowledge will increase appreciation. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think to maybe, I guess, ex- explain that and, and, cause I think I understand what you're saying and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but removing some of that mysticism that surrounded something like a Bordeaux. Okay. So if these guys are able to analyze the molecular structure of, of a Bordeaux and then they go to South America, right. And they find this other region that the molecular structure matches that of a Bordeaux. Okay. So virtually like they just, you know, through however means they just have very similar structures that just says it's not just it's not just exclusive to this one region you can have this structure exist in other parts of the world and it can be just as good of wine now of course there's more factors than just what what that is and again we're talking provenance not just the terroir but is that kind of what you're saying is that we're going to be able to you know and in in my I, mind, what I, I think mean, would happen yeah, is yes, but almost the exact opposite, right? Like I, yeah, I can imagine through the example that you just referred to that a uh, a Bordeaux producer would go, well, hold up, I don't, I don't want somebody else thinking that they can produce what I produce, you know, like I don't want the rest of the world thinking that. I want the rest of the world thinking that my shit's special, but. My my guess is that the you know one in a million chance that you run across a wine from an entirely different part of the world that is it, that is biochemically uh, similar to a to a wine that's produced in Bordeaux would only make that wine that singular wine special, not reduce the value of all the other wines. Well, that's what that that's what I I mean. I guess what I was going to say it's like you know let's say it was in, you know, Chile or something like that. It's like that, that Chilean wine gets immediately more expensive. Right. <laughs> that's what it, that's well, what, that's or, what that or at the very least gets a lot, a lot more like, um, you know, reputable, you know, yeah, like people, notoriety, people start seeing it, people start paying attention to it. Thank you. Notoriety is the word I was looking for. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and people, people will pay attention. And I think the more attention people pay, to wine, I think benefits everybody. It's a high tide situation. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think the more, the more science that you can bring into it, that it doesn't, and it doesn't affect the process, right? Which I think is no, really because cool. you're only you're only analyzing the finished product, right? Right. But you know, you know what's really cool. Uh, so I'll, I'll draw a parallel. So some uh, fr- uh, friends of ours. Um, created a uh, a what we'll call a bitter company. I, I wouldn't necessarily call it bitters, but that's sort of it's a tincture company um, called Mary's Alchemy. And and the concept behind Mary's Alchemy um, is that they broke down the uh, chemical characteristics of different uh, marijuana strains and reconstructed them 
um, the same like chemicals and terpenes and uh, what have you, all, all very fancy words, um, from different organic plants, different organic matter throughout the, you know, the sort of the fruit and vegetable spectrum to recreate those flavors into, into a, um, a tincture compound. And so they created this, this company called Mary's Alchemy that's based around the understanding of the flavor profiles from, uh, from different weed strains. So that way you can take those and use them as flavor additives even though it has nothing to do with weed, it just tastes like weed, like the the like the the raw product, not like once you light it up in your pipe or in your bong. Um, and it's fascinating. I mean, it's just it's super nerdy, super fascinating shit. I mean, we have like a strawberry Kush. We've got a uh, uh, you know some. I I'm not a pothead, so you're gonna forgive me. I don't I don't know all these other ones, um, but they. All I know is that uh, the first time I tasted it, um, like we, we just added a few drops into some soda water. It was my my Pavlovian response was, oh, fuck, I'm about to get fucked up. But there was there's no THC in it. It's not even from weed. It's it's flavors that uh, have been pulled chemically from other plant materials that they just blend into creating the same. The same flavor profile based on their like biochemical makeup. I think, I think getting that understanding from wine and really being able to understand how, like what wine is from where, and then, you know, I don't know, fucking using a Corvin or some, or some shit to like withdraw, like a, just a, a thimble full of that wine is going to reduce the ability for, People like Rudy Kurwan to, uh, sorry, Kuniwan to to be able to to dupe people. You know, we're going to actually be able to have real um, real auctions with that. You know, actually like hold up to science, so you can say yes, this is real. This, you know, just like we do with paintings and and uh, carbon dating. You know, like the what this means, the implications of this across across changing the culture around the world is huge. And I think that's fucking rad. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think so too. I mean, you know, again, kinda of going back to to that documentary and, and the sour grapes and watching that unfold over so many years and then even over the course of that documentary and seen at the end that there were still people who believed that he was selling legit stuff that, that blew my mind. And if you can have this, what you would think would be like infallible method of testing, right? Where you can kind of be like, Nope, this doesn't make any sense. This structure makes no sense for this. Get it out of here. You know, I just, I wonder how many people within this industry, because it is, it is so based on tradition and, and stuff like that, that would they fight the science? 
you know, and that sounds ridiculous until you start to think about our current culture and how often people fight science. So like, I don't know. I don't think yeah, I'm I don't think it's ridiculous at all. Like, I think, yeah, a, I don't a, lot think people, base, a lot of people, a lot of people just don't want that, you know, that they don't, they don't want facts that, that counter their, their knowledge of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm, I'm definitely going to be curious to see how that, how that goes, but I, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to it. Yo. Uh. And now it's time for our sexy auction bottle of the week. Nope, wrong one. <laughs> Uh, well, Chris, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that wasn't the first time you pushed the wrong button in a sexy situation, and it won't be the last. <laughs> I'm going to agree with you on that one. <laughs> okay. So, Sexy Auction Bottle of the Week is a segment that is still relatively new. I think this is week three. Yep. And... In this segment, what we do is we pose a bottle to our counterpart, and they tell us what they think it's valued at. We started doing this because we love any type of spirit auction. We find them fascinating. We feel like a lot of our listeners find them fascinating too. Plus, this just continues to affirm our belief that you should invest in whiskey and other spirits. At the very minimum, this is what we tell our wives. So with all that being said, I am going to give Chris a rundown of this bottle, and then he is going to tell me what he thinks it's sold for at auction. Um, so what we have is an independent bottling from the Glenlivet Distillery, and the independent bottler in this scenario is Samaroli. Samaroli is an Italian importer bottler who's been around since 1968. They do all kinds of incredible bottlings. Um, they work with rum. They work with whiskey. Lots and lots and lots of fun stuff. Glenlivet, of course, is the oldest legal distillery in Scotland. It was founded in 1824. It has one of the biggest outputs of whiskey production in the world. And this in particular one was a 27-year-old Glenlivet independent bottling bottled in 1982 and comes in at 43% ABV. Chris, with this knowledge given, what do you think it's worth? Um, it, does it have a finish on it? You know, was it finished in a sherry cask? Was it finished in a port cask? Um, it was finished in sherry wine. So the malt whiskey was overaged in, I'm trying to read this label right now, oak casks that had previously considered sherry wine. Um, it, might have, it might have just been fully matured. It has a pretty deep red color to it. And yeah. When, when did it go to auction? It went to auction. When was this one? 
This would have been within the last year. Okay. Sam Rowley is uh, hands down one of my favorite independent monsters. Um, um, the man himself started off as a um, as a wine connoisseur and and claimed to have the best palate in the world. Um, he made his way into sourcing spirits where he also told the spirit producers that he had the best palate in the world. They did not believe him. They put him to the test. He proved himself correct. And they said, okay, well choose the barrel that you want. <laughs> and that's how he, that's how he started his, uh, his independent bottling company, which I think is fucking baller. Um, uh, a night you said, a, what was the year on the Glenlivet in 1972? It was bottled in 19... Well, it was from 1982. 1982. Oh, no, hold on, hold on. Actually, let me make sure I get this right, because obviously that matters. Um, bottled in 1982. Bottled in 82, and it it's was from 1955. Old. 55. But. And this is a 750. It is a bottle number 97. Let's see. 97 out of how many? Um, what does it say? It does not. Okay. I, I'm i assuming that this is uh, probably a European Union um, uh, auction site because I can only think of one that's in that's in asia which is sad and i could think of like two or three that's in the eu so i'm gonna i'm gonna say this in euro in in sorry in um yeah euros i think it's going for seventy two thousand euros okay is that your final answer fuck it yeah (laughs) so you came in below their estimate but not, but they and they and they might have adjusted this after because this is a past auction. But they kind of nailed it. This actually sold for nine thousand seven hundred and sixty euros, or actually um, British pounds. So, oh, okay. Um, that that roughly translates to twelve thousand eight hundred and eighty-three dollars, because currently. The U.S. dollar is a dollar thirty-two compared to one pound. I did a little research for us on that one. Wait a minute! Wait, wait a minute! So it was. Wait, that's not correct. You said you said it was how how many euros? Nine thousand seven hundred and sixty. Okay. All right. Yeah, so which makes it twelve thousand, a little over, almost thirteen thousand dollars. American dollars. Well, shit, that's really fucking cool. <laughs> I actually, I, um, so so you know, obviously, I will put this onto onto our our Instagram and Facebook page to to show you guys. But what I love about the packaging and what really, as I was going through and looking at this lot, because they had been 
quite a few things get auctioned off in this lot. What really jumped out to me about it was one being a Samarelli because I I have had some of those now. And again, another shout out to Travis Baker. Uh, he gets to sell it, that lucky bastard. And it's really, really great stuff. But this, the labeling on this is so much fun. And it looks all handwritten for the most part until you get to the very bottom. But for the most part, it looks all all handwritten. It's um, There's a signature on there as well. I'm not sure if... If it is Samarelli who who signs that, but then up top you can see that they have a um, they have a bottling date of looks like either August or April of see April thirtieth of nineteen eighty two, which I love when anytime that you can have a very specific date, it just it gives you. It, it can resonate more with people, right? Like, you know, when we were talking about those Japanese whiskeys a couple of weeks ago, and when you can add that little bit of uniqueness to it, whether it was a playing card and you had to collect the whole set, or now you're putting on a specific date, like that date means a lot to a lot of people, right? Yeah. And I don't know what it, it could be their kid's birthday, it could well, be their even birthday. If, it even if it their... doesn't mean something to you at the time, I guarantee you that if with computers at our fingertips now, the second, if you were to get your hands on that bottle, you would want to find out what happened on that day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what was the worldly news? What was going on in the world on August 30th, 1982, for sure. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really awesome. Um, really awesome packaging. It has its Italian strip label on it as well. So that's really kind of cool to see that. So that's going to be like, it's, it's going to have like its tax ID number on it and, and everything too. And the color on it, you know, again, this is something that sat in a sherry cask for 27 years. Um, it is, it is very, very dark. Um, they have one picture of it actually of the bottle flipped upside down and there's a bunch of residue in darkness that are, that line the bottom of the bottle oh, that's almost really kind of like this muck so it's probably it, and it doesn't state it here but what that tells me is that it's probably unchill filtered as well right yeah i yeah. mean i think it's a pretty safe assumption um that it'd be unchill filtered at that point i mean and you're getting to 750 which is you don't see that very often uh coming out of the europe anyway so that's true, uh, because primarily it's coming out in in seven uh, hundreds or liters, right? Yep. Yeah. So yeah. So um, again, I'll share I'll share these pictures. But you know what, Chris, I'm proud of you, man. You know, when we first did this a couple of weeks ago, you were a million dollars off. This time, <laughs> this time you were two thousand dollars off. Okay, and well, then, you know what, man? A fucking a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. You're getting, you're getting good. So now here's <laughs> now here's the question: If you get this bottle, do you drink it or do you save it? It's a Samaroli. I'm drinking it. I'm drinking it too, without yeah, question. Fuck, yeah. yeah, we're drinking and, that bottle. Uh, also, in like being in the '80s, this was. I believe uh, uh, old man Samaroli was still alive and working at that point in time before his kids took over the company. So this would have been one of his picks and not his son's picks, which 
not talking shit about his kid, but it's kind of cooler to get one from the man himself, you know? Totally. Well, that's a fucking sexy-ass bottle, Drew. You know who's dope? Them over there. All right, and now my favorite segment of the week, our dope follow. Chris, who's your dope follow this week? So uh, at the shop, I have a I have a TV that I like to play um, food and booze documentaries on, or like, or uh, you know, YouTube channels, um, uh, or ridiculous movies if I'm just really bored. But lately, I found myself on Amazon Prime watching um, a set of documentaries called A Year In, um, and and I've really enjoyed it. So they have like a year in champagne, a year in port. These uh, documentaries are, they're fucking rad because you get to know a set of characters, producers, people who are movers and shakers within their perspective, their uh, respective industries. And you get to have like a little bit of insight into sort of the mundane life of of what they go through in a year and it doesn't really remove the romanticism but um like we talked about before it sort of removes the mysticism and it makes things a little bit more approachable and uh it it sort of breaks down what producers go through in any given year now i think it's really freaking cool um uh, they've been really interesting i've learned quite a bit when i've actually like been able to sit down and watch them i'm at my store i'm working so i don't have like you know 100 percent concentration on them but i've been playing them on repeat because i i really enjoy them um so i i strongly suggest people go out and 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 watch and follow as they produce more because it seems like more and more are coming out um it's uh, you know the a year in series so a year in champagne a year in port uh, it, they're really cool, and I, I, I can't um, really uh, suggest them enough. So it's, it's really interesting that you say that, because when I was in high school, I took French. And I could say, like, two things. So, you know, don't go there. But <laughs> one of the things that we watched was a movie or something, like, that was called The Year in Provence, right? and it was I'm, I'm I'm looking it up now and I'm trying to just figure out really what what it was. So it was a TV mini series is what it's looking like, okay? And I just found a copy of it on Amazon for $465. So this is a very popular oh. mini series. I don't know why that's a thing, but it just it it basically just it's exactly what it sounds like, right? It is just a a year of this couple moving to Provence and trying to make it work for them, right? Um, what's really hilarious is that we watched it in the sequence of the time of the school year. So we watched it out of order and it was uh-huh. very, it was very confusing when we got to like January, we're like, what are we starting over? Like, this is super, super weird. And it never dawned on my teacher that that was not the right way to watch it. But, um, <laughs> um but, but that's just they were, like, they were probably super excited. Like, ah, oh, this is going to be so cool. We're going to do it. It's going to match up with their lives. They're going to understand it. It's going to click so well. Yeah. Yeah. It, it did not work. 
Um, <laughs> it's still, I mean, now we're talking, oh my gosh, 17, 18 years later, it still bothers me. So um, <laughs> uh, I'm not going to let that one go. Okay, so A Year in Champagne on, on Amazon Prime. We'll have to check that out. Oh, here we go. I just found it. Let's see. Oh, there's A Year in Burgundy, A Year in Champagne, A Year in Port. I'm going to watch that Port one. That looks amazing. Yeah, and I uh, honestly, I've seen all of them, obviously. Uh, yeah. I think the Port one is, is going to be one that you resonate with. Um, I don't know why. Honestly, I haven't been able to put my finger on it, but definitely when I was watching it, I was like, oh, Drew's going to like this. Wow. I mean, we spent enough time together. I, I, I believe you. Well, I, I just, mean. you know, I think about you, and I, you know, <laughs> I want you to be happy. I appreciate that. I do appreciate that. Uh, okay. So that is your Don't Follow of the Week. Um, mine is is one that's it's going to be on Instagram. And this is a history in memes, oh. is what it's called. And it's just a completely ridiculous Instagram post that like does historical moments throughout, um, you know, just throughout the world history. But it puts it into like modern day memes. It's oh, lovely. So, have you ever seen the picture of the guys watching the UFC fight and they're all freaking out at the same time? Yes. So on this one, like the example is when Napoleon agrees to sell the whole Louisiana territory for three cents an acre and it's all of them freaking out. It's like James Monroe, Thomas Jefferson, Robert Livingston. Um, and then let's see here. There was one I found earlier that was cracking me up. Oh, um, the Vikings were the first Europeans to discover America, not Christopher Columbus. And at the bottom, it's like it doesn't count on a discovery unless there's a little genocide with a sprinkle of Christianity. So, <laughs> does that count uh, for the moon too? Uh, maybe I don't know. We're gonna find out. Uh, but so there's just there's just all kinds of ones on here, and if you are a history buff at all, you'll obviously get a lot of references. And then if you're pop culture, you're like, okay, yeah, definitely. So it's called History in Memes, and again, that's on that's on Instagram, and it just fucking cracks me up all the time it's a really really fun follow the good bottle podcast is a production of fluid concepts the music is brought to you by two very sensual brothers. The brothers more. That's right, because you want more. These episodes are produced and researched and edited. And what else you got? Uh, by uh, uh, me and the other guy you've been listening to uh, this entire hour-long process. And before we go kill these bottles that we've been drinking, we ask that if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, smash that subscribe button, and leave us a five-star review. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook at The Good Bottle Podcast, and you can also support the podcast and my desire to have the most ridiculous Christmas decorations this year by checking out anchor.fm slash 
good bottle podcast. I really want you to have a Christmas kitty with lasers on its head on top of your roof. I'm actually working on some pretty ambitious plans. Put that on the list. If you would like for us to cover a story or if you are a brand that wants us to be uh, wants to be featured, please email us at thegoodbottlepodcast at gmail.com. And as a reminder, you can purchase the bottles that we drink on this episode at thegoodbottleshop.com. And until next time, cheers. Cheers, homie.